All right, guys, today's topic is ecosystems and ecology, and that's kind of where we're gonna go for a while. And before we do ecosystems and ecology, we gotta talk about what a species is and what a population is, because those terms come up a lot and they have a little bit of a different definition when we're now in AP environmental science. So when we look at levels of organization, we start with the smallest, which is your chemical level of organization, your atoms, and your atoms make molecules, and your molecules make organelles, and your organelles make cells, and your cells make tissues, and your tissues make organs, and all of your organs together make an organ system, and all of that combines to make an organism. So at the smallest level that we really deal with, we're talking about the organism. You are an organism. The wolf here is an organism. All of the wolves in a given area make up a population. So all of the students at Mission Viejo High School make up a population of students in Mission Viejo High School. And all of the members of that population are exposed to kind of the same thing. Whereas the students at Laguna Hills High School make up a different population, their experiences might be slightly different. And so then their take and understanding of life might be slightly different. They are a different distinct population. Now, could the two populations intermix? 100%, but they are considered different populations. Now, if we talk about the wolves and the um, bunny and the deer and the grass, that's all the community. A community is all the living things in a given area. When we add in all the abiotic or the non-living stuff, like the mountains and the streams and the rocks, now we're in an ecosystem. And like ecosystems are joined together to make biomes. And all of those biomes join together to make the ecosphere. Ecosphere is anywhere on life, on earth, that life can exist. A species has a very distinct biological definition. To be a species, an organism has to be able to breed and produce viable offspring. There are two parts to this. There's prezygotic and postzygotic. Prezygotic means that tab A is never going to fit into slot B, that you're never going to have sperm meat egg, that you're never going to have fertilization. So these are barriers that are before the zygote can even form. We have postzygotic factors. That means that we got the sperm and egg to meet but the genetics didn't match up. The number of chromosomes wasn't the same. The layout of where the heart is on the chromosome is different in one organism to another on different chromosomes. And because of these chromosomal differences, yes, you got sperm and egg to meet, but they can never produce an offspring that's gonna be born. Sometimes you can get offsprings born. So like this grizzly polar bear hybrid, you can get it to be born, but it's not viable. Well, what does viable mean? It means that it cannot reproduce. So you get it born and it can grow up and it can live a happy life, but it is an evolutionary dead end. It cannot, it is not fertile. It will never have babies. A population is defined as all of the organisms of the same species living in the same area. And we define a population size by natality, which is birth, mortality, which is death, immigration with an I, individuals coming in, and immigration with an E, individuals leaving. When you look at this map, the purple is the current range of a cougar, and if you add in the orange, this is where cougars used to be, 
before man came into the picture. All right, so what's a cougar? A cougar, a puma, and a mountain lion are all the same. They're the same species. And this is why we have to use genus um, species as a species name as opposed to the common name, which depending on where you are in the country is cougar, mountain lion, or puma. It's all the same animal. These populations often exist in different areas, but they're gonna have the same niche. So if I know where a puma is up in Washington and what that habitat looks like, I can predict where I'm gonna find one in Southern California because they're gonna have the same niche, they're gonna live in the same area, eat the same foods, and be hunted by the same things. Limiting factors um, for our niche, we have two different types of niches. We have a realized niche and a fundamental niche. A fundamental niche is anywhere that this species can live, anything that the species could eat, and anyone who could possibly eat the species. That's different than realized niche. Realized is the reality of it. Realized is what the animal is actually eating in this habitat, where the animal actually is living. Um, what is actually eating it. The um, realized niche is often smaller than the fundamental niche. This is like saying when you're little, you can be anything you want when you grow up, you can be president. That's your fundamental niche. Your realized niche is most likely do you want fries with that. Um, a limiting factor is something that an organism needs for survival, but is in very limited supply. There can be shortages of lots of things um, but the one that will kill you first is the true limiting factor. So you need food, water, and shelter. The one that's going to kill you the first is your limited resource. So even though you need all three and they can all be limited supply, if you don't have water, you're dead. It doesn't matter how much food there is. All these freshmen are trying to get in while I'm recording your lecture. <sighs> all right, a couple of different population graphs. The S-curve. Um, is also known as a logistic growth curve because it looks like an S. So freshman year, you were taught logistic. In apes, you call it the S curve. You have slow growth initially, followed by a period of exponential growth, followed by a leveling off or steady state when you've reached carrying capacity. Carrying capacity is the maximum number of individuals that that environment can sustain. The maximum number of individuals that you have enough food for, water for, shelter for. Environmental resistance is the area between the exponential growth and the carrying capacity. A J curve is also known as an exponential growth curve. We don't see it very often in nature. Um, we end up with overshoot where the population will quickly exceed the carrying capacity and there won't be enough of that limiting resource and then the population dies off to a very low level and then it starts again. We see this most often in invertebrates, in fish, bacteria, small mammals. Um, human population growth, though, is on this J curve. And I'm gonna do an intermission now to teach a class, but this lecture will continue. All right, back at it. So we left looking at the different population curves. We've talked about this a little bit that a community is all of the different populations living together in a defined area. So if in the picture, this reef is a defined area, the community is all of the different species of fish. Niche, um, so a niche is a description of how and where an animal lives and dies. 
And the biotic factors of a niche are what the organism eats, what eats the organism, its symbiotic relationships as far as mutualism, commensalism, parasitism, herbivory, and how it alters the biotic world. Um, so if you look at our beavers here, they alter the biotic world um, in eating the fish that are in the river. Abiotic is where it lives, how much territory, the light, the water, the shelter, and how it alters the abiotic world. So the beavers are building a dam. So they actually dam up the river. Um, a couple of terms here. Competition is two organisms or species fighting for the same limited resource. And it can be intraspecific, so the same species. Um, this is a basis for evolution, right? The weakest don't make it, the weakest don't get mates. Um, it stabilizes our population numbers. It could be interspecific, different species, and we have competitive exclusion. So when we look at the story of the reintroduction of the wolves into Yellowstone, they actually will competitively exclude other foxes and coyotes from being in the area because they're just better at getting the prey items. Predation, one species eating another species. Um, an example of negative feedback, where if the coyotes come onto campus because there's a ton of bunnies, and then they eat all of the bunnies, guess what? The coyotes won't come onto campus anymore. Herbivory is maybe a new term for you. Herbivory is a type of predation, but it's where something eats plants. So you're actually being a predator to a plant, and I bet you didn't think that could happen. Plants often have defenses against this. That's why plants have thorns. It's why they have spines. It's why like poison oak has a toxin because it's trying to prevent you from eating it. Parasitism is one species living in or on another eventually causing harm. This is a guinea worm. And so it actually gets in underneath the skin and the way you remove it because you're often in remote villages without great healthcare is you make just a little slit above where you see the worm and you pull it out and wrap it around a dowel and every day you just wrap it a little bit further. You're essentially teasing that worm out of your system. Mutualism is a symbiotic relationship where two organisms both benefit from that relationship. They're both getting something out of it. Um, for an example here is lichen. Anytime, by the way, it says named example, these are the examples if um, IB or AP asks for an example of mutualism, these are the examples you wanna use. So when we talk about a mutualistic relationship, one of our named examples is lichen. Lichen is this like fuzzy green stuff on rocks. It can also be pink and yellow or white. Lichen is a fungus on the bottom, which supplies water and minerals to a green algae on top. And green algae is doing photosynthesis, supplying the fungus with sugar. Another named example is leguminous plants and a rhizobin. The rhizobin is a bacteria that lives in the roots of the legumes and it does nitrogen fixation. So it provides the plant with a source of nitrogen. In return, the legume provides the bacteria with a sugar. All right, moving on. Food chains, food webs, and food pyramids. Two laws of thermodynamics. You thought by taking apes you got out of physics? Eh, kind of. So the first law of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed. You can just change the location of that energy. You can change the form of that energy. 
So the total amount of energy is constant in isolated system. The universe is that isolated system that we're talking about. This is also called the principle of conservation of energy. We can't destroy, we can't create, we can just change form. The second law of thermodynamics is disorder will increase in a system that is not in equilibrium. This is entropy, where this energy is in this neat organized packet of a donut and I eat it and it becomes disorganized. It becomes a little bit of ATP, it becomes a lot of heat. It's no longer in this nice neat form of a donut. That's the second law of thermodynamics. You do need to know how to apply both these laws. So what are the implications in the food chain? Um, when we talk about plants, they convert only one to 2% of the sun energy into sugar. Herbivores convert about 10% of what they're eating of the plant material into their body, essentially. 90% gets lost to heat. So when a herbivore, a rhino, eats grass, 10% of the energy in that grass goes to make the rhino fat. The other 90% goes to making the rhino warm. Carnivores, 10% gets eaten, turns into lion muscle mass. 90% is lost to metabolic processes and capturing the prey. If second semester we come back to full-time in-person learning, we do this really cool lab where you guys get to actually grow caterpillars into butterflies and you get to measure the conversion rate. Because even though we say 10%, it's not 10% exactly. Um, and so if we come back to full-time, I'll order the butterfly larva and you guys can do the lab even though we'll be in a different unit. Photosynthesis is the process by where plants turn the energy from the sun into sugar. It creates the raw materials for all other bases of the food chain. Plants do do respirations. So they're gonna do photosynthesis to make the sugar. They're storing the sugar for their own use. And then they're gonna do cellular respiration to break it down when they need that sugar. Transpiration's a form that you'll, or a term that you'll learn. It's a loss of water. If you've ever sat underneath a tree on a hot day, that tree pee is transpiration. Respiration is the process of converting sugar to ATP, and it can be anaerobic, which means it's using oxygen, or, I'm sorry, let me start again. It can be anaerobic, which means it doesn't use oxygen, or aerobic, which means it does. It's an inefficient process, whereby most of the energy is lost to heat, and a little bit's used as ATP. Food chains are the one choice at each trophic level. It's the simplest way of showing an interaction between animals within a community. Each trophic level describes how the energy is obtained, and some organisms can have different trophic levels depending on the food chain they're in. So if we look here, our phytoplankton, our plant plankton, are our primary producers. These are the first guys to make the energy that's being used in the ecosystem. The primary producers are eaten by the primary consumers. These are our little zooplankton. They eat the phytoplankton. Our secondary consumers are the second ones to eat the energy that's been made. That's these little fishies. Tertiary consumers are the third ones to eat the energy and quaternary are the fourth ones to eat the energy. 
All right, so here's our energy that's being made by our primary producers. Primary consumer, first one to eat the energy. Secondary consumer, second one to eat the energy. Tertiary, third one to eat. Quaternary, fourth one. When we talk about our types of producers, an autotroph makes its own food through photosynthesis. Autotrophs can also be chemiosynthetic. Chemiosynthetic means that they're not using the sun as a source of energy. They're using other things like methane, ammonia, or hydrogen sulfide. Types of consumer. A consumer is something that eats something. These guys are herbivores if they eat only plants. Omnivores if they eat plants and animals. Carnivores if they eat only meat. Know this table, guys. I'm not gonna go over every little piece of it, but know it, read it, absorb it. So a primary producer is the first trophic level. It's an autotroph, always. It's using its body to make energy from the sun. Primary consumers can be an herbivore or an omnivore, depending on its life habit. And often negative feedback loops will limit the population. These guys are also just responsible for dispersing seeds and pollinating flowers. Secondary consumers are carnivores or omnivores, and they often remove deceased and diseased organisms from the population. It's the easiest thing to catch and eat. Tertiary are carnivores and omnivores. Again, they're gonna eat the easiest things. And then we have these things. We have decomposers and detrivores. Decomposers and detrivores are both eating dead stuff. The difference is a detrivore is a large animal eating dead stuff, and a decomposer is a small animal eating dead stuff. The food web is now all of the food chains in a community linked together. The food web is a complex way of showing all of the possible interactions, and it is the most useful thing to ecologists because I can say, well, what happens if I take the mule deer out of the population, if he's gone? Well, if he's gone, then my coyotes will have to find something else to eat. And so my coyote will eat more western whiptail, more ringtail, and more jackrabbit. Well, if they're eating more of those things, their populations go down, which means there's less of them for the mountain lion to eat. So the mountain lion then has to eat more jackrabbit and more so it allows us to kind of now start drawing connections to what happens if something leaves or comes into the ecosystem. I want you guys to watch this video, Wolves in Yellowstone, because we always talk about our food webs in, in terms of pulling something out. In this video, it talks about what happens if you put something back in. An ecological pyramid is going to tip our food chain up on end with our producers on the bottom, primary consumer, secondary consumer, tertiary consumer. This is gonna show the amount of energy. In general, as a rule, only 10% of the energy transfers up, and so you can see there's an energy loss. And what I'm gonna tell you about this is if you have to draw it for APRIB, remember in like ninth grade, you drew it as like an actual pyramid? No, you wanna draw it as boxes, boxes stacked together. Don't draw it as a pyramid. You'll get marked off, trust me. There are a couple other energy pyramids or types of pyramids we can draw. So the energy one's the most common, but we can draw one of biomass. 
biomass is the amount of material that's at each level. So biomass is not a great ecological number. To get your biomass, I have to kill you, dehydrate you, and then weigh you. So it's the weight of all of the organisms minus the water. And you can see why we don't like getting that number because it involves killing things. And then a populate or pyramid of numbers is the population size. Um, here's a little advantage, disadvantage, and I'm gonna let you read those on your own. Um, numbers, it's hard to count everything, right? Doesn't account for juveniles necessarily. Um, lots of errors in sampling, and we'll talk about sampling and getting population numbers in a minute, or in a day, or in a week. Biomass, like I said, you gotta kill stuff, um, and seasonal makes a difference in biomass. Think about a bear, he's gonna weigh a lot less after the winter than he is right before he goes into hibernation. And then what's going to affect your biomass? Some biomes have a higher NPP, which is net primary productivity, where they're going to have a higher biomass of plants. But even temporal, your biomass of plants in Chicago in the winter is very, very different than your biomass of plants in Chicago in the summer. Energy, um, it's difficult to collect the Data, and like I said, second semester will do it. And here is your TOK moment. TOK, theory of knowledge, how do we know what we know? Why are top carnivores suffering the most due to ecological change? Think about it. We'll discuss it next time we're in class. There might be some answers. Okay, food limitations here. Um, we are inefficient eaters. We gotta poop, we gotta produce heat, and so 10% goes up to the next level. On average, really it differs, and it's in a complex calculation, but if you're asked to figure it out, just assume it's 10%. That's it, that's where we're stopping. We made it, woo -hoo! That's it for today, guys.